Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 89 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Today we'll cover three cases. Uh, the pickings were a bit slim, uh, as Illinois Appellate Court's justices were in many instances at the judicial conference that took place last week. Uh, but there was uh, uh, some Seventh Circuit arguments, and we've got a, a third case from the Seventh Circuit today. The uh, first case today is from the Indiana Supreme Court and is, get ready for this long uh, caption, Eric J. Holcomb, Governor of the State of Indiana, versus Roderick Bray in his official capacity as the President Pro Tempore of the Indiana State Senate and Chairman of the Indiana Legislative Council, Todd Houston in his official capacity as the Speaker of the Indiana State House of Representatives at all. So that wasn't even everybody. That's not everybody. So that's just the main the main guys. And it's a, an interesting case about executive powers. We'll get to in a minute. Uh, and, and, and the separation of powers. The second case today is an Indiana appellate case, Parkview Hospital, Inc. versus American Family Insurance. A dispute over a hospital lien and the second time that it's before the Indiana appellate court and probably not the last. Uh, the, <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about some of the commentary at, at the at the hearing. The third case was before the Seventh Circuit, a personal jurisdiction case, NBA Properties versus Hanwaj. Is that what? Is that sure. Whatever. I, 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 yeah, it's H-A-N-W-J-H. I'm not sure the court understood it. <laughs> so if my son was, if my son was on uh, here who studies Mandarin, maybe he could tell us. Uh, it it, it appears to be an acronym for it something. Does. It does. So who knows? Yeah. Uh, with that, let's turn to the first case, Holcomb. Sure, it makes a lot of sense in Mandarin. It doesn't make a bit of sense in English. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. In Holcomb, separation of powers is the most fundamental principle of American state and federal constitutional law. That is the principle that the Indiana Supreme Court will apply, assuming it gets past standing of the governor when it decides this case. And again, I'm not going to go through the entire caption again, but wow. Um, Article 4, Section 9 of the Indiana Constitution states... Section 9, the sessions of the General Assembly shall be held at the capital of the state, commencing on the Tuesday next after the second Monday in January of each year, in which the General Assembly meets unless a different day or place shall have been appointed by law. But if in the opinion of the governor, the public welfare shall require it, he may, at any time by proclamation, call a special session. The length and frequency of the sessions of the General Assembly shall be fixed by law. The court described the issue uh, this way. House Enrolled Act Number 1123 from 2021 requires the General Assembly to convene in an emergency session when the Legislative Council adopts a resolution that makes certain findings. The governor sued for an injunction and a declaration that the legislation violates Article 3, Section 1, the Separation of Powers Clause, and Article 4, Section 9 of the Indiana Constitution. The Marion Superior Court 
Granted summary judgment to the defendants. The governor appeals. The Indiana Supreme Court is granted transfer and assumed jurisdiction over the appeal, end quote. As we've talked about on this show and, and uh, extensively, but, uh, but is anybody uh, who's lived in the country for the last two years knows, COVID-19 has led to all sorts of litigation. Uh, but the most important deals with the authority that particular government branches, government agencies, and governments generally aggregated to themselves during this period uh, with COVID executive orders and lockdowns and emergency orders. Pat, with that, tell us about the oral argument in this case. Thanks, Dan. And, and this really is a, a very interesting case in a whole lot of ways. So I want to start with who the advocates were. So the legislature was represented by the attorney general and by the solicitor general uh, did the argument. The governor had private counsel from right. Lewis Wagner. And though he didn't argue the case at counsel table was John Trimble, who was a very prominent defense attorney, a past president of the FDCC, uh, very active, you know, very uh, prominent defense attorney in Indianapolis. Uh, they represented the governor in this case. Um, so it's interesting that the AG went with, I, I don't know if he had a choice or, or how that worked, but I thought it was interesting that the AG picked, you know, an executive officer didn't defend the executive, defended the legislature. Interesting. The other thing that I find interesting is there's this enrolled act. Well, I, it's just, it's maybe something about Indiana constitutional law I don't understand, but a law, an act doesn't become a law unless signed by the governor. Now I'm presuming the governor did not sign this act as right. and make it a law uh, because he's objecting to it. If he had, then he'd have a bit of a problem, but it doesn't seem like he, or if he did, perhaps he vetoed it and they overrode his veto. It was unclear as, was as unclear. to what happened here. Um, the Because if you go back to what Dan read about Article Four, Section Nine. It says, "As appointed by law." Well, appointed by law. That's a that's a bill that's passed and signed. Um, and there's all these different kinds of accessions that they have in Indiana. So they have their regular session. When you heard of the the second, the first Monday after the second Tuesday, and or first, whatever the heck in January, and then you have these emergency sessions, and then you have these other kinds of sessions called technical sessions, which in Illinois we would call veto sessions. Uh, that and that's actually prescribed in the Illinois Constitution is a period of time when the legislature comes back in the fall for a couple of weeks typically and deals with any vetoes, uh, whether they're mandatory vetoes and they're full vetoes, whatever they are. And then they can also do other business too uh, if they uh, undertake certain uh, parliamentary shenanigans. They can do some substantive business during that period, during the uh, um, veto session as well. So you have this idea that or the, this fight between the, the executive branch and the legislature over who gets to call them into special session. The statute or the, the, the generalists or the constitution rather says the governor can call them into special session. It doesn't make it exclusive, it seems, because the next sentence is the length and frequency of the sessions of the general assembly shall be fixed by law. That is the general assembly gets to decide when it meets to. Is this a coextensive power, or is this an exclusive power of uh, of the governor? Um, again, and the governor is trying to so by law. That, is that something that's been enacted? So. Right. Well, and then what? How is length and frequency 
of the session, because there's, as I said, there seems to be three different types of sessions, regular sessions, emergency sessions, and these technical sessions that everyone agrees get called to deal with vetoes, because if you don't, if it gets passed and the governor vetoes it, the, the legislature doesn't get back in time to deal with it, the, the, the veto stands. So you've got to have something to be able to have the legislature speak on the issue if they want to deal with whatever the veto is that the governor is, has, uh, has issued. So I, the, the governor um, is running a real risk here of having his power uh, curtailed. I suppose he could also say it was already going to be curtailed, so I might as well just take, take the shot. Right. to um, to establish what I'm allowed to do. This is a, the other thing that's interesting here is this came up a little bit, though not as prominently as it did in a, on an issue we discussed in episode 76, the Illinois road case that dealt with an amendment and creating a trust fund for uh, road uh, taxes collected in Illinois and what the Illinois voters understood from the amendment. Here in Indiana, there was a period, the, there was a, the Indiana Constitution was rewritten in 1970, and there was a proposal to give exclusive authority to the, or give coextensive authority to the legislature to write, to, to call executive, or into uh, emergency sessions. And that language ultimately didn't make it into the Constitution that was presented to and ultimately approved by the voters. So does the fact that it wasn't there make a difference? And then the other thing is, is that there's a long discussion or a lot of discussion, I should say, about how it used to be that it was exclusive in American state constitutional law, that this was exclusive to governors, but it's grown to where now it's almost over 30 states that allow the legislature to call itself into emergency session absent an order from the governor. So the trend has kind of been the other way from being an exclusively an executive authority to at least a coextensive authority between the, gen between the legislative and executive branches as, as to whether they, whether they come into session the other thing is, is that just because the general, the executive gets to call them into session, doesn't mean he gets to set the agenda. Right. <laughs> so he can call them into session, but he doesn't get to set the agenda. I believe in Illinois, if the general, if the governor calls them into special session, he gets to tell them what it's about. This is what you're. That's what I'm having you come back for. I think we had that happen a couple of years ago with the budget. He right. called them back and said, "You guys come back and deal with this budget because we got to have a budget because we got a problem." Um, and, and and so that's. It's a, it's just another piece of fallout from the COVID. This all arose out of COVID nineteen. Uh, the legislature wasn't happy, I think, with what the governor was doing in terms of issuing all the executive orders, and the legislature wanted to cut back, so they called themselves into special session. That's where this comes from. And the question is, can they do that? Right. Uh, so he's it, at bottom is another attempt to curtail his executive authority, or at least from his perspective, to curtail his executive authority, and this whether they can come back, call themselves into special session in order to pass something in order to get him to cut, or to cut down on his authority. So you can see the fight between the branches. And so naturally they all run to court to get the answer uh, as opposed to fighting it out. Um, so very interesting and very emblematic of not only the kinds of disputes that arise, but how we have them decided. Um, not sure that's what where they were supposed to be decided, but that's where it's going to be decided, I think. Dan, anything else to add to this argument? No, I think you know the only thing that came to mind as I listened to this argument and read about it the, ahead of this was was whether this is even relevant anymore. It seems moot, although what we see uh, I saw on the news today that Philadelphia is considering mask mandates again. So maybe maybe this is never going to go away. So it needs to be resolved. But the current situation, at least 
you know, uh, in terms of executive orders and shutdowns, I, I can't imagine we're going to go back to one for COVID, you know, but it, it sets precedent for future powers. Well, yeah, I, I think that this is a situation where it's, um, it, it falls into the exception of evading review, uh, likely to reoccur, but evading review. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that that would fall into this category. The other thing I forgot to mention, and Dan mentioned it in the introduction, was standing is does the governor even have standing to bring this? And there was a dispute over, okay, so you're telling me he could, at one point they said, well, he could, he didn't bring it as in his individual capacity, he brought it as his, as his government capacity. And you guys have a case that says that in his official capacity, he can't, he can't do this. So you're telling me he can do it in his individual capacity, but not in his capacity as a government? Well, no, if he did it that way, then he'd have a different set of problems. I, I, I do love this standing game that gets played where basically you're telling me no one can challenge what you're doing. No, no, there has to be, there has to be somebody right. somewhere that can challenge what a government official does. It may be another government official. It may be a taxpayer. It may be a citizen in their ordinary capacity. Somebody has got to be able to say, no, right. this is wrong. And this, let the court decide whether it's right or wrong. This idea that nobody can challenge what you do seems kind of absurd, but we see it all the time. Well, no, you don't have standing. You don't have standing. Somebody has standing to say, no, this is an, ex you've gone too far. Otherwise it's a, it's not really a, a Republican form of government or right. Democratic form if you can just do whatever the hell you want without challenge. That's not <laughs> right. Any branch then, yeah. then you've got issues. There's no checks and balances. Then right. what the hell? Ultimately there has to be a check on what each branch does. Except there's one branch that doesn't seem to have a check, and that's the that's the uh, the judiciary. No one needs to say no, no, you don't get to decide. No one gets to say no, you don't get to decide that. Except the judiciary can say no, no, that's not in our province. That's like a unilateral uh, uh, circumscri uh, uh, circumscription of their of their authority. So, although, although the way to do that is you could by legislation very narrowly for the federal at least and state level as well narrow the types of things that they have jurisdiction to decide on. Well, and that's one of the things that came up is that whether he can bring an action under the Declaratory Judgment Act. And, and that's just that kind of thing is to strip them. It's essentially a jurisdiction stripping statute. Right. Uh, it, it grants, but then they could they could peel it away, as you say, uh, in the Declaratory Judgment Act as to whether the, you, you can do that. Or not. Yep. All right. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back and discuss uh, Parkview Hospital versus AmFam. We're back for segment two of episode 89 of the Podium and Panel podcast and for Parkview Hospital versus AmFam. And I, I think when reading this case, I could think back to the uh, the Highwaymen song uh, about Parkview Hospital, which in that song is a uh, is a mental hospital. Uh, so <laughs> think about that, you know, open up the Spotify and listen to the Highwaymen uh, sing about Parkview Hospital. Uh, so on its second time, the Indiana Court of Appeals will hear Parkview Hospital versus American Family, a dispute over hospital lien. The court has set the issues before it as follows on Parkview's appeal. Number one, whether the trial court lacked jurisdiction on remand to consider whether Parkview's summary judgment included attorney's fees. Real quick, the background of this is, is that there was, a, there was an accident that occurred in Ohio, and the question was whether the adjudication Ohio. of the lien in Ohio, whether it had jurisdiction to adjudicate their lien. And the court said, no, you didn't. 
So, and that was a, a decision of the Indiana appellate court that said that the Ohio court didn't have jurisdiction. So then they went back down and had to decide on remand what to do with this lien and who had to pay. All right, number two, whether American Family's motion to correct error challenging Parkview's damage award is barred by the law, law of the case doctrine, race judicata, or forfeiture. And number three, whether the trial court erred when it determined that Parkview is not entitled to attorney's fees. American Family cross-appealed and raised the following issue for review, whether the trial court erred when it awarded damages of $95,541.88 to Parkview, the entire amount of Parkview's lien, rather than limit damages to the $50,000 settlement American Family has paid, which is American Family's limit. Uh, Dan, tell us about the oral argument. Sure, Pat. And a couple of things. Uh, a lot of time was spent at oral argument on the Hospital Lien Act that you mentioned. And the reason for that is that it talks about damages uh, and an award of damages. And a lot of questions of, uh, you know, the, the party seeking the attorney's fees here, because when we think of damages, uh, we think of just damages, right? And uh, attorney's fees usually aren't damages, right? And as most most listeners, not in America, and yeah, right, and as most listeners to our podcast or just uh, lawyers would, would know, and most Americans know, uh, our system of uh, attorneys' fees they're generally not awarded. Uh, that that's well, they can be awarded, but they're the exception. They're not damages. They're, the they're something special. Right, right. Um, and one of the justices in this panel uh, specifically asked uh, the advocate. He said, "You know, there's a lot of uh, pieces of legislation." under Indiana law uh, that do, in fact, uh, say damages plus attorney's fees and costs or uh, damages plus attorney's fees. And here it just says damages. And so um, kind of like we were talking about before with legislative bodies and what they pass, Pat, you know, the question here is the legislature knows very well how to set forth uh, when attorney's fees are, in fact, uh, part of a statutory framework, and uh, this one does not appear to, to uh, be part of it, and so it seemed like the justices were skeptical on that. Um, the uh, you, you also mentioned, I think, and, and it's an important fact, uh, is that this was uninsured motorist or underinsured motorist um, for, for the accident, and that policy limit under the American Family Policy that, that covers this case is $50,000. And so there, there's a, a now a, 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 an order that says they have to pay $98,580, whatever the exact number is, which, which again is... That's on top of the 50 they already paid. On top of the 50 they already paid. Now, they concede they owe, the, owe another 50 because yeah. they screwed up. They agree right. they owe another 50, but they dispute is they owe another 95. They're down with, okay, we'll pay 50. Right, but we're not paying you the whole ninety-five year old. They they screwed up on that, and that was that was asked. Um, the uh, uh, again on this whole concept of of, of damages and the American rule, uh, um, the um, uh, some of the justices again asked, you know, are damages damages here included attorneys' fees? And the advocate for uh, petitioner or the appellant uh, said that they could be. Um, and then again, the, one of the justices specifically asked point blank, couldn't they have put this in the legislation? I know how to do that. And then the, the appellant, and I, I wasn't sure it was a very strong argument when I when, when listening to it, but he said, 
Uh, there's a lot of other things that you have to use to interpret statutes and, and how they're uh, effectuated. Um, you know, the, the, the hurdle there for, I think, him and, and, and that position is that's not generally how you read statutes, right? You read the statutory if the t text is plain. Um, it, it, it's a bit of a challenge, I think. Um, the um, you mentioned that that, that there was uh, it, it went up on uh, appeal. This is Park U two. Uh, maybe there will be a Park U uh, three. Uh, but the allegations was that the first appellate uh, panel. Uh, did not address this whole issue of attorney's fees. And so it went back down with direction and then uh, came back with this now uh, uh, different award and still an issue of, of whether these attorney's fees are in fact um, uh, included. Um, there was talk about the, the kind of the public policy of this hospital lien act and um, the uh, one justice said there's a lot of different things taking place in this act, and so can you explain to me, you know, again, your, your position? Um, and, and the appellant talked about the fact that you have to ensure that the hospital will use and file liens. Um, then uh, uh, part of that is, is that if you take away uh, or don't recognize attorney's fees as part of that, then the hospitals and this whole lien process will not uh, get effectuated because there won't be incentive uh, for the hospitals to file these liens and go through these things. Um, the uh, 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 there, there was also talk about uh, uh, um, uh, again that that a lot of that stuff that the appellant was talking about was anecdotal that wasn't in the record. Uh, one of the justices asked for an actual reference in the record, statutory source, um, and, and didn't get satisfied. Nah, uh, all, all the person, the, the advocate said was bad faith here. It's a per se violation. Um, and then, as you mentioned, they, the, the, there was talk about uh, uh, the, this question and and one of the justices was trying to distinguish between void and void ab initio and whether that had any impact on this analysis. And again, I wasn't quite clear where the justice was going with that because uh, what we have here is, is an issue of, you know, whether, whether or not American family is going to be, be uh, tagged for uh, these additional uh, damages and attorney's fees. And so, um, but but uh, so it's a, it's an interesting um, uh, it, it's an interesting uh, issue. Uh, again, one of the justices you, you mentioned the ninety eight thousand versus the fifty. Um, the uh, one justice used that we used an example and was trying to trying to get, again digest this, you know, what if the, the, the amount of the award was X and, and, and there was other insurance or other things. Um, and again, the, the appellant was trying to make the best case he could that he said that, you know, uh, uh, hospital uh, uh, liens can be above the $50,000 policy limits, trying to make some argument of, of of, of uh, statutory language in Section 6B of the Hospital Lien Act. I don't, I'm not sure that. Yeah, I don't know how they rewrite the statute or how they rewrite the policy. They can't know. rewrite the policy. The policy says what the policy says. And 
yeah, I get that they're going to have to pay again because they didn't protect the lien, but they don't have to pay more than what their poli- what the policy said they would owe. The most they could ever pay was fifty thousand dollars. They paid a fifty. Again, <laughs> and there, there, there's a case uh, in Indiana, uh, National Insurance, that was referred to a couple of times. That has to do with the Frivolous Claims Act, and that that yeah. again, uh, you can get attorney's fees. Uh, but again, w- w- when you listen to the argument and you, you read the uh, description and you read the Hospital Lien Act, it's it's tough for me to understand how you could even make an argument that this is analogous or there's a frivolous claim. There's no fr- no one's being frivolous and here. Nobody's no, there's no allegation in the in the record that there's a frivolous claim. I yeah. mean, again, a lien was. It filed. may be that yeah, maybe that Amfam's wrong, it may be that Parkview's wrong, it may be a lot of things, but. There's nothing frivolous about any argument that anybody's making here. They just, you know, turns out ones are going to be right, ones are going to be wrong. But there was nothing frivolous or in bad faith here. Um, far from it. If this is bad faith and frivolous, then boy, you better watch out because there's going to be a lot of people getting dinged. Right. And then uh, I, I thought a humorous uh, exchange took place in, in, in an oral argument. Uh, they talked about this is uh, Parkview 2. I think one of the justices said, well, there was Parkview 1. I guess this is Parkview 2. And, and one of the advocates said, well, you know, th- this may not be the last that you see of us. And the justice kind of snickered. But we've, we've talked about other cases, Pat. I think this is one of these. It's going to go back down or whatever it's going to happen. And that's going to – it'll be back because it doesn't sound like <laughs> – These people are not giving up. They're going to keep fighting with each other. Right. <laughs> Like, yeah, like, I'm not like, sure the avenue for it to come back, but I, I've been either. surprised before. I'm not either, and I, and 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 I was kind of thinking about that the the case with the the repossession of the of the person's car that we covered a long time ago, another Indiana case, and just the cost. Like even if you eventually get victory in this, how much how much in fees are you spending? And if fees aren't well, in his remember in his case in in the you're talking about uh, the Tyler. Uh, I'm drawing right. a blank on his. Yeah. In his case, remember it's a 1983 case. I know. So they're getting their fees. They're getting their fees. But they're getting their fees. So in a case like this, again, uh, what I what I often tell people is is that law is sometimes a matter of principle with PLE. But that costs a lot of principal with a PAL at the end. And sometimes yeah. you have to consider which principal you're more interested in in addressing for your personal uh, well-being. So that's 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 right. It's uh uh you know, I, I don't know what's gonna happen with this particular one, but it's uh they're fighting over the principal of the thing. Um, they are. All right, so with that we'll take our next break and come back with MBA properties versus a word we can't pronounce. Right. <laughs> hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Back for segment three of episode 89 of the Podium and Panel Podcast and turning to an interesting case of counterfeit items. And personal jurisdiction for entities who sell over the Internet is an emerging issue. Uh, there's no 
not the same geographical considerations. And there's a lot of litigation, especially in the Northern District of Illinois and the Seventh Circuit, uh, involving Chinese uh, counterfeiting. Uh, there's Why? A, well, there's a law firm in Chicago that that uh, focuses extensively on this. Okay. Um, and, and and gets uh, emergency motions. It gets uh, money frozen on PayPal and okay. eBay. Uh, my prior firm, uh, we, we represented somebody that was accused of counterfeiting. And it, it, this firm, you see them if you see the distribution. I can't remember their name, but they're uh, very. This is what they do. Chicago. This is what they do. I got it. Okay. I was trying to figure out why why here. Yeah. You can understand why there's a lot of you know certain kinds of trademark cases that are brought in the Second Circuit and the and right. the Ninth Circuit because right. New York and L.A. Okay. Right. But what why you know one point they did make is there's an NBA franchise here. Yeah, but there's an NBA franchise in tw- 29 other cities. Right. So. <laughs> right. So in NBA properties versus, again, whatever the acronym is, the Seventh Circuit will address whether there's personal jurisdiction over a Chinese seller of allegedly fake NBA merchandise who marketed their products on Amazon and made one sale in Illinois. Uh, that sale was to counsel for the NBA, uh, and so there was a lot of discussion in this about another case that, that Pat will get into uh, that, uh, that involved uh, the Attorney General, I believe it was, making purchases. Uh, the d- district court in this case held there was jurisdiction. Counsel for the defendant referred to the transaction by the lawyers as a sham, uh, but backed off that when questioned. Judge Ripple made the point that the cause of action does not require a sale at all, merely the offer to sell the counterfeit merchandise, and that the defendant could have chosen not to sell the products in Illinois. Although again, for purposes of, if you're on the internet and on Amazon, uh, good luck with that. Yeah, tell us about oral argument in this interesting case. So what Judge Ripple, Judge Ripple really took up the uh, position of the NBA and asked a series of tremendous softballs to the lawyer for the NBA, basically setting up, you know, how this is working. And, I, and one wonders why he did that. I think because Judge Connie was not present and he may have been trying to lay out, he may have a reason to believe that Judge Connie is going to side with the defendant in the case maybe and wants to get make sure his his view of how this works or should work gets clearly on the record but he I mean, i'm purely speculating here uh but he was basically making the art walking through why there was jurisdiction so to dan's point there's this case where the illinois ag bought bought cigarettes online cigarettes. Right. but they did it after the suit was filed um which makes it a little different this is before yes. the suit was filed and the point that Judge Ripple made is, hold it, you can restrict and say, we won't deliver to Illinois. And as somebody who, you know, you, you they can say, we won't deliver to your zip code. Uh, and they just extay all the zip codes in that in that, uh, in that that area. Or they won't, we won't sell to Chicago. Well, um, I, I, I can I, tell you, as someone who's tried to buy ammunition online, they will tell you, you put in a zip code where you want it shipped, they say, we won't ship it there. They that, won't ship, most won't ship to Chicago. I think on certain things like ammunition, maybe Pat, but I'm not so sure on on books or or regular merchandise. Um, maybe, maybe. Yeah. But it's in any event but, that this was the point that Judge Ripple was making. So I, I've written about this topic. I had a column, or in the in the Illinois uh, Daily, I'm sorry, the Illinois Defense Council Quarterly, and there was a series of cases from the Illinois Appellate Court that dealt with this. Uh, another, th- some of these are all name teams, just like the last one. So here we go. 
uh, Sheikh Hulse Islam versus Favreau was a case involving a Canadian lawyer with an Illinois license providing immigration services to someone who was coming to the United States and they sued him for legal malpractice in Chicago or in Illinois. And they said, nope, there's no personal jurisdiction because he actually didn't do anything in Illinois. And then you have probably the closest situation to this here, with this situation here, which is Dixon versus GAA, where the, an auctioneer sold an automobile that turned out not to be in the condition that it was alleged to be in. And the Illinois appellate court said, oh, no, there's jurisdiction here because you specifically directed what you did to Illinois. Then there was Zamora versus Lewis, which was a case dealing with whether an Airbnb host could be held liable for or could be sued in Illinois for alleged misrepresentations as to the condition of the house. The house was in Maine and there was a fire that killed the plaintiff and the court held that that that, that was not um, that there was no personal jurisdiction there. And then a case called Wesley versus National Hemophilia Foundation. And this gets us back to some of the point that Judge Ripple was making. It held that the, you could sue a person from Washington, D.C. for defamation in Peoria County because under Illinois law, the tort of defamation occurs where the statements are published. Uh, Judge Hamilton kind of got his, <laughs> I think, got his wires crossed at one point when he asked whether, when he asked counsel for the MBA whether intention is required because the lawyer for the MBA was saying, hold it, you have to show and it has to be intentional. And he's like, where the Supreme Court's jurisprudence is intentional required? And, I, and counsel didn't say this, but I was like, the, the phrase is purposeful availment. What is purposeful if it isn't intent? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the purposeful in this context means something other than the intent. But it, it, it's got to mean at least, the, I, to me, it means that you intended to take advantage of the forum where you're being hailed into court. And that the foreseeability of you being hailed into court is kind of the, the, the standard there. But it, if you're directing activities towards Illinois, and here they actually sold something, Yes, one thing. Yes, to the lawyers, but they did sell a thing. Right. That's allegedly counterfeit. And they offered um, it here as well. They offered it here as well. So uh, I, I don't think this is going to go very well for the defendants. Um, and it was, they did also get some pushback on why are you guys filing these things? And and one point they made is you have to, because if you don't protect your trademark, you don't keep your trademark. Right. Uh, and that's they have to they have to protect it. Um, and this was this lawsuit was filed. Um, as a consortium of, of by you know NBA, NFL, uh, NHL at least maybe more of the professional sports leagues that got together to sue this entity that was selling um, counterfeit uh, allegedly counterfeit professional you know, jerseys, um, and so they all need to get together and protect their copyrights because if they don't, they don't keep them. Um, and if you remember years ago, Michael Jordan sued Jewel and won a bunch of money for they they used his image. And you want a bunch of money. People are like, why is Michael Jordan? He has to. Yes. Because if he doesn't, he doesn't keep Jumpman. He doesn't keep his, his image is how he became a billionaire. Yes, putting basketballs in hoops is the foundation of that. But him and LeBron James and others, that their money is, the real money is made on their image and their likeness. And they've got to protect that. And if they don't, they aren't going to own it anymore. And that's how they make their money. That that's where their value. That's what their that's where their money comes from. Uh, once the once the ball ball stops bouncing, that's where they make their money. <laughs> so, anything else to say on uh, the NBA properties case, Dan? No, you know it's an interesting case, and as as mentioned in my in my prior firm, I, I had some exposure to this. Um, 
It's a real issue. Like you said, though, with any intellectual property, the main value of your patents or trademarks or copyrights going through that process is to be able to enforce and protect it. And if you don't, yeah, there's there's uh, kind of like sitting in your hands. I don't, I don't know the exact phrase, but you abandon or otherwise, you know, if you're not using it or, or you're not protecting it, there's a there's arguments of abandonment uh, in right. all these uh, intellectual property rights. You know, one of the things that's been happening on Amazon in the last couple of years, I had a, a, a wedding dress box uh, maker uh, that had uh, protected stuff for 80-something years. And, and on Amazon, and I sell things occasionally on Amazon, uh, mostly books, but occasionally you get other things. You have books? Get, yeah. Who knew? Who knew? But you, you'll, get, you'll get letters from Amazon now. Uh, for a lot of these, in, including that box maker, uh, that you have to be able to uh, justify and show that you've got trademarks or that you've got the actual intellectual property that you're selling mm. on there or rights to it because it, uh, Amazon, Amazon can get sued. As a giant seller, has had all these issues, and then you got quality control, right? People buy something, and it's a jersey. They buy one of these jerseys. It's counterfeit. Then they look and it's not, or it's not a Louis Vuitton or, or whatever the whatever the product is, and then they they have now consumer actions and all that stuff. So, Amazon's really cracked down in the last couple of years, but there's still tons of these cases because it's so prevalent the the uh, amount of counterfeiting and alleged counterfeiting. I, I will say it at my former firm. Uh, we, we used to go in once a year and buy counterfeit jerseys from China. We used to do it as a bulk. And guys would get together and buy the jerseys all at once. And they had, they have to time it to get it done before it got taken down. Uh, so, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a thing. It happens. It is a, it is a thing. So, All right. Uh, so with that, uh, let's do our, what do our prediction sure to go wrong? Do that, or we're we going to do the the bi for COVID first. Let's, oh, that's right. We need to do the bi for COVID. So tell yeah. us uh, what happened uh, in New York, in yeah, the a, uh, Louisiana, and the Eighth Circuit, and in Wisconsin. That you saw oh, and in Wisconsin. Yeah, we just saw that too. Um, in, in New York, there was a case against Westport. It was a, a, a very heavy hitters for various amici. Uh, involved Lots of amici, including Jen, Jenner and Block, including Debevoie, I think it was a, was one of them. Um, but it, uh, similar to many of the other cases, uh, the uh, Supreme Court of New York, which is a reminder, is the lowest court in New York, and uh, they they labeled their courts differently way back in colonial times. And so, uh, uh, in an event, that court uh, issued. Uh, 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 granted a motion to dismiss, probably will be appealed, but uh, uh, well, the, no, the appellate court affirmed it. The appellate, the, the, I, I the, apologize, the, yeah, the appellate court affirmed the appellate court affirmed it. So now I'd imagine it'll yeah. go to the court of appeals, right? Which is yeah. their supreme court, right? <laughs> so that that's that case in, in Louisiana. Uh, Cajun County was the first case filed, uh, it was filed in March of 2020, almost immediately after executive orders went into effect. Uh, it's a Cajun restaurant down in, uh, in, in it's in the French Paris, Quarter. In the French Quarter, uh, famous restaurant, um, and uh, they had a trial. It was in twenty twenty. In twenty twenty, uh, policyholders lost, and so now uh, that case is now uh, going to be heard um, uh, uh, this week. Uh, I have one question. Yep. 
Why did it take 15 months? This case was tried in like December of 2020. What took 15 months for the appellate court to take the case? <laughs> Who knows? I, yeah, I was wondering the same thing. Maybe, maybe they just, maybe they weren't doing remote case. I don't know. Or maybe they were doing, you know, long post-trial stuff that took right. a delay, or maybe this is on a discretionary appeal. I don't know. Right. And, but they've taken the case. The appellate court has. And then in the Eighth Circuit last week, uh, in the case United Hebrew, it involved a St. Louis synagogue or, or a couple of synagogues and, and the COVID-19 uh, shutdown uh, that, that involved the synagogue down in St. Louis and the Eighth Circuit in the, a very short uh, two-page decision. It's not really, really even two pages if you take out the caption and stuff. It's a paragraph or two. They refer to oral surgeons and say that for the reasons in oral surgeons, they adopt that reasoning and uh, affirmed uh, the motion to dismiss. And then finally, uh, in Wisconsin, Pat uh, had texted me uh, this morning uh, an interesting development. There's a case in Wisconsin that was actually for policyholders. Uh, at the trial level. At the trial level. And uh, the Supreme Court of Wisconsin is going to hear oral arguments in that is it this week or is it not, not been sure. said yet? I, I don't know I, if it's been said. They've accepted it, though, it seems. Yeah, they've accepted it. So, again, it could be an interesting case, um, uh, one of the few cases for policyholders that uh, is going up on appeal. And so we'll see if they, you know, if they reverse it or, uh, or affirm. So we'll, we'll keep there an we eye on that case for when it's ready. So that brings us to our prediction, sure to go wrong for this week. Uh, Dan, uh, is the governor going to win? In uh, in Holcomb, uh, I don't know that he is. I don't think so either. I think it's going to be affirmed. Yeah, uh, I, I think the legislature is going to win. Which brings us to uh, Parkview. Uh, do, does Parkview get their fees? I don't think they do. I don't think they get their fees. No, I, I think that they're they're going to get their fifty. Right. Uh, I don't think they're going to get. I I, I think that. So, the, so there's two parts to this. There's, is Parkview going to get their fees? No. And then the question is, is American Family going to have to pay 95 or are they going to only have to pay the 50? I think 50. I think 50. I think I think AmFam wins Parkview 2. They lost Parkview 1. I think they're going to win Parkview 2. Um, so I think it's going to be a, an affirmance on one end and, and a reversal on the other. Um, the, the last one is, is the NBA properties case. That's an affirmance. That's an affirmance. Yeah, that that's getting affirmed. Yep. Uh, the NBA is winning that case. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're winning this winning the case. I, I expect they're winning that there's jurisdiction that they're winning. Um, right. I don't know if they're going to win the case. I have no idea if the, if the products were counterfeit or not, but they're going to win jurisdiction. Yeah. Which brings us to the one case that was decided this week that that we had picked, uh, West Bend versus Vaughn's Fetch. One of the great names for a litigant we've had, Vaughn's Fetch. They had a lot of trucks. And the court held, no, you don't get to stack the 34 trucks times seven times that you attached the uh, declaration page every time you amended it. You don't get all that in, in liability limits. Um, they held no stacking there. And this is one where Dan and I split, and I, I closed the gap to one. To uh, one Dan's game. up by one. Yeah. Uh, but I, you, we have to say that with a caveat. Because I went back and listened, because I had thought I had picked that the fifth district was going to do what usually does and rule against the insurer. I, I actually said the opposite. I said they were going to rule. That's what I picked. That's what you did. did. Yeah. I, I had gotten it confused. You predicted Kate's was going to write the dissent. But she didn't. She wrote the opinion. 
Right. <laughs> so I don't know if I lose points for that. No, I don't think so. But that, that, I don't that think was, so either. That was a big part of the reason why I thought that they were going to stick it to the insurer again because of her, the, the, her questions on the bench. But again, as 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 I told uh, uh, Moot Court competitors last week, you know, you you never know, uh, with certain exceptions, what uh, what a, what uh, justices and judges on appellate courts are thinking all the time. You know, you just it, sometimes you think, well, they must be going this way, but sometimes they are trying to you know, sort out some issues they have or questions for themselves or for to hone, and to hone their own reasoning is right. to figure out, okay, this is, I, I think, I, I think I agree with this, but I, I need to firm up where I, why I think that, or, you know, make sure I get the steps along the way. Correct. Um, yep. Which brings us to the rule of the week, Dan, why don't you tell us about this? You, you dug this out. Sure. Our rule of the week is the admonition on unpublished opinions and the citing and reliance on, on the same. Uh, recently, the 11th Circuit spent time reminding district courts underneath it that unpublished opinions are persuasive but not binding, and that a district court should not blindly cite such a case as a basis for its decision without making a determination if it is persuasive. And what happened in this case was that the district court did exactly that. They cited to an unpublished decision and said for the reasons of this case, um, this is how we're ruling. Eleven circuits like, wait a second. <laughs> Did you actually read the case? Because number one, it's it's unpublished. So again, it you you better damn make sure that it's actually on point. And, and they did not do that in this case. It's a good reminder for all involved in litigation. We've talked about the Seventh Circuit and other courts uh, that you should uh, know not just unpublished decisions and their rules, but also things that come out. Right? You better be prepared to be able to talk on those things. So. Good ad- admonition. Um, and Pat, you know, uh, I mentioned the moot court. We, we've discussed a variety of rules and things that advocates should do or not do. Uh, as I, I mentioned to you uh, uh, over the weekend, last week I judged three sets of advocates in, a, in an intramural moot court. Uh, one advocate who was excellent when asked about one of the leading cases in it responded he had blanked on the facts of that case and so could not distinguish or address it. Uh, another advocate asked a question uh, by a fellow judge, froze for 10 to 15 seconds. We thought that Zoom had frozen, and then she eventually said, can you repeat the question or rephrase it? Uh, but neither of those items is is uh, really ideal, and, and uh, we've covered a lot of uh, oral arguments on this thing, and, you know, we've complimented very good behaviors, but you, you need to, you know, act accordingly when you're up in front of, uh, at the podium. Indeed, although I will say, if the if the advocate truly didn't remember the facts, it's better to say I don't remember the facts and I'll get you something than to try to try to bullshit your way through it because that's not going to work very well. Oh, I agree, but it, it'd be you know it, it'd be like I, I can't think of an analogy, but but the case was I mean really essential to okay know, what we were debating. It was like the it was like the key case in, in the in the bench memo and everything. Oh, it's like if I'm arguing Dobbs versus Jackson, and if I don't remember the facts, or Roe versus Wade. Right. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a bit of a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, and again, yeah, and, and, you know, it's moot court, so it don't really matter. Uh, he still did very well, but uh, it's a lesson. Life, boy, if you're up in front of you know Easterbrook or anybody, any any. Uh, appellate judge or, or Mike J- Justice Hyman and said, you know, I don't remember the facts. <laughs> they would, they, number one, they would educate you on them. Well, you know, 
council. I'm, I'm surprised, and here they are. <laughs> so you run that risk, but in any event. You do. All right. So with that very helpful reminder, Dan, uh, we'll take our leave. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. We'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.